This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello everyone! Oh, I almost forgot to roll the intro. That would have... <laughs> that would have been a mess if we not had an intro, but I'm glad we had an intro. So, hello everyone, my name is Cameron Cowan. Welcome to the Cameron Journal News Hour. Um, oh my goodness. So, last week I decided to take off because... It was a Monday before a holiday. I figured everyone's out. Y'all are vacationing. You're living your best lives. We'll talk about the news next week. Um, and we have a lot of things to talk about because a whole bunch of Supreme Court cases came down, um, including one that is has saved democracy. So we'll get into that in a minute. But I hope you all had a great 4th of July. Mine was very quiet at home, which I enjoyed. I don't a lot of fireworks noise here in, in downtown Seattle, so that was nice. That's all I heard from my friends everywhere else. Oh god, the fireworks noise, more fire everywhere. I'm like, I'm so glad that that isn't the case here. Um, which is really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun, it's been a fun holiday week. Very busy, lots of things happening, lots of things going on. Um, it's just, yeah, um, so many things happening, um, and just, thing, <laughs> just things have been a little, a little nuts. Um, I'm in the middle of working on a lot of projects and finishing up a lot of books and things right now. I was working on some of that over, over the weekend, so that's, that's really exciting, and... Um, if you're not signed up for my, my newsletter went out last week. If you're not, not signed up for my newsletter, um, feel free to head over to the Cameron Journal. Um, the, if you scroll down on the homepage, there'll be a pop-up, but barring that, on the <clears throat> right side, there's a sign up. You can sign up for, um, for the newsletter. And, uh, and I, once a month I send out, um, an email with, um, a wrap-up of what I thought was the most important, <clears throat> new story thing going on, a couple personal updates, um, and some reminders to watch stuff and listen to stuff and all this type of thing. So it's really cool. Um, I also send out every week a wrap up of what I've written that week from the Cameron Journal. So you get that delivered directly into your email box, which is really cool. So um, if you want to stay in touch and get um, the Cameron Journal stuff delivered right to your inbox and from other places that I write, like Plank Sip and other things like that, um, then, uh, then let me, uh, then, then do sign up for that. So it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun and, and trying to do 
more with that as as time as time goes on. Um, I'll I'll admit my audience has never been that excited about reading my newsletter. Um, the last time I had really good stuff on the newsletter, I think, was during Brexit, um, which I covered quite closely. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is a lot of fun. We're um, we're into high summer now. It's July, and let's dive into some news headlines. Um, this one came across today, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, and that was that uh, Putin and Prigozhin, the commander of the Wagner military group that tried to have a coup that wasn't a coup um, in Russia in late June, which we had talked about um, the last time we were together, um, uh, apparently had a lengthy meeting uh, earlier this month. It says here, President Vladimir Putin of Russia held a lengthy meeting with Yevgeny Prigozhin just five days after his Wagner private military company launched a brief mutiny. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said on Monday, noting that, quote, further employment options for the mercenary group were among other matters discussed. It is the first known contact between the two men since Wagner's uprising, which posed the most dramatic challenge to Mr. Putin's authority and his more than two decades in power. But the Kremlin's account of the meeting left a host of unanswered questions about the mercenary group's future. It says here, Mr. Putin invited 35 people to the three-hour meeting on June 29th, including Mr. Prigozhin and all the Wagner's top commanders, the Coleman spokesman said. He did not specify where the meeting took place. The details of any agreements reached at the meeting remain unclear, and Mr. Prigozhin hasn't said anything about it since the failed mutiny. The only thing we can say is that the president gave his assessment of the company's actions during both the war in Ukraine and the uprising, Mr. Peskov said. The commander shared with Mr. Putin their version of events. He added Putin heard out commanders and proposed further employment options and further combat options, Mr. Peskov said. The fighters also pledged their loyalty to the Russian president. They emphasized they are staunch supporters and soldiers of the head of state and commander-in-chief, and also said they're prepared to fight for the country going forward. So, that's interesting. Um, the fact that Prigozhin hasn't been killed, or unceremoniously shoved out a window, I think is rather is rather interesting. He has a staying power that Russian oligarchs have not seemed to enjoy. So I think that is is an interesting interesting situation. Um it was definitely a frightening twenty four hours. Um uh, uh you know when it seemed like there might be a new a new Russian civil war. So um that that was just that was a lot. Um <laughs> on while we're in Ukraine talking about the war in Ukraine, um, today uh, Erdogan of Turkey, Erdogan, Erdogan, um, uh, says that he uh, backs Ukraine's ascension to NATO. Um, after President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine paid a visit to Istanbul, the Turkish leader also said he would work to help extend the Black Sea grain deal for longer intervals, it says here at the New York Times. Um, it says here that... Um, with Zelensky at his side, Erdogan says Ukraine deserves NATO membership. Um, and then there's also about uh, Biden and the cluster munitions, and we'll come back to that. Um, it says here in a televised news conference early Saturday morning, after a meeting between the leaders, Mr. Erdogan said that, quote, Ukraine deserves NATO membership with no doubt. Mr. Zelensky also visited several other NATO nations over the past few days, ahead of the alliance's two-day summit next week, during which the Ukrainian president hopes to get clarity on his bid to join. The government in Kyiv views membership in NATO as the ultimate guarantee of its security. Its application in September to join the alliance was made against the backdrop of Russia's full-scale invasion. 
President Biden, who's scheduled to attend the summit during the trip to Europe next week, said in a CNN interview set to be broadcast on Sunday that Ukraine's acceptance into NATO would most likely have to wait until after the war. I don't think there's unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, at this moment in the middle of a war, Mr. Biden said, according to an excerpt published by CNN. Because of the alliance's bedrock commitment to mutual defense, he said, if Ukraine were admitted to NATO now, the allies would be pulled into the war. If the war is going on, then we're all in war, he said. We're at war with Russia, if that were the case. Mr. Zelensky was also in Istanbul to talk about the Black Sea grain deal, which is once again facing an uncertain future. Mr. Erdogan said that President Putin of Russia was expected to visit Turkey in August and that he was working to try to extend the grain deal for longer intervals. Our hope is that it will be extended at least once every three months, not every two months, he said. We'll make an effort in this regard to try to increase the duration of it. One of Ukraine's primary uh, income sources is grain exports. Also, keeping Ukrainian grain on the market keeps people fed in poor third world countries so that prices don't skyrocket. So if the Black Sea deal gets shut off, then people in Africa start dying of starvation because we live in a globalized economy where that's possible. So um, I'm not surprised that Biden wants to wait on bringing Ukraine into NATO until after the war is over, because obviously if Ukraine were to get into NATO now, they would immediately trigger Article 5, and that's World War Three. So I think even Biden's smart enough to not want to... Um, want to start World War Three, so that that's a good, a good a good thing, a good idea, positive progress. But I'm not surprised. Um, Ukraine will one day be part of of NATO, and there will definitely be a new, a new border, probably really a new kind of international boundary between NATO countries, which the border of with that is complete from Finland down to Ukraine, and if Ukraine joins, it will be complete to. Uh, the Black Sea. <clears throat> um, so it's uh, the Iron Curtain in reverse a little bit. Um, but I don't know how soon um, the war in Russia will end, allowing Ukraine to join NATO. So that's a, a difficulty all of its own. Um, turning our attention back to um, non-Ukraine news, um, but on the international front still, we have this really... <laughs> so Brazil is a more functional democracy than the United States. Here's how we know this. Um, last week, Brazil barred Jair Bolsonaro from office for election fraud claims. It says Brazil's electoral court banned former President Jair Bolsonaro from seeking office until 2030 for spreading false claims about the nation's voting system. It says here, Brazilian election officials on Friday blocked former President Jair Bolsonaro from seeking public office until 2030, removing a top contender from the next presidential contest and dealing a significant blow to the country's far-right movement. Brazil's electoral court ruled that Mr. Bolsonaro had violated Brazil's election laws when, less than three months ahead of last year's vote, he called diplomats to the presidential palace and made baseless claims that the nation's voting systems were likely to be rigged against him. Five of the court's seven judges voted that Mr. Bolsonaro had abused his power as president when he convened the meeting with diplomats and broadcast it on state television. This response will confirm our faith in democracy, said Alexandra de Moraes, a Supreme Court justice who leads the electoral court as he casts his vote against Mr. Bolsonaro. The decision is to sharpen a swift rebuke of Mr. Bolsonaro and his effort to undermine Brazil's elections. Just six months ago, Mr. Bolsonaro was the president of the world's largest democracies. Now his career as a politician is in jeopardy. 
Under the ruling, Mr. Bolsonaro, 68, will be able to run for president in 2030, when he is 75. The next presidential election is scheduled for 2026. Mr. Bolsonaro said Friday that he was not surprised by the 5-2 decision because the court had always been against him. Come on, we know when, since I took office they said I was going to carry out a coup, he told reporters, though he too had hinted that possibility. This is not democracy. His lawyers had argued that his speech to diplomats was an act of government aimed at raising legitimate concerns with election security. Mr. Bolsonaro appeared to accept his fate, saying Friday that he would focus on campaigning for other right-wing candidates. Um... Yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we could do the same thing for Trump? But no, sadly, sadly, we're not that lucky. Um, we uh, don't have an election court, and so um, we cannot ban him as a candidate. I don't even know if there's a legal precedent to do that. I don't think there is, um, or ability to do that. But, it, you know, as I said, the, Brazil has a more functional democracy than the United States at this point because we have, um, they're actually... You know, when people try to undermine democracy, they get rid of them. In this country, we nominate them for the Republican nomination in 2024. Fun times. <laughs> Speaking of elections and all that sort of thing, um, this was an interesting story that happened over my break. Um, a federal judge limited Biden officials' contacts with social media sites. So this is in the New York Times. It says here, a federal judge in Louisiana on Tuesday restricted the Biden administration from communicating with social media platforms about broad swaths of content online, a ruling that could curtail efforts to combat false and misleading narratives about the coronavirus pandemic and other issues. Backstory. So, I, this week on the Cameron Journal, in fact, it's up right now, there's a story called The Silence of the Conservative Voice where I unpack Matt Taibbi in the Twitter files. One of the things that Matt Taibbi put forth in the Twitter files was that there was a, here's that word again, collusion, between the federal government and social media sites to um, shut down anti-vaccine, anti-COVID um, voices on social media, to shut down other conservative people who were countering the main government narratives about COVID and the 2020 election and all this type of thing. Now, what's interesting is that this goes between presidential election or presidential administrations. So this started under Trump and went into the Biden era. And what Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and other people who worked on that report did was they were used the emails and stuff that Elon Musk had released to show that the government was actively violating people's First Amendment rights. People get the First Amendment twisted. The First Amendment is there to protect the government against you, not just companies and other private people. And so this decision um, is part of the legal case coming out of that reportage. So just so you know, and if you want to read more about that, please go to CameronJournal.com. Um, that article's on the front of the page of the um, website right now. I should probably do a dedicated video about that, but we'll we'll get around to it. So it says here, the order which could have significant First Amendment implications is a major development in a fierce legal fight over the boundaries and limits of speech online. It was a victory for Republicans who have often accused social media sites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube of disproportionately taking down right-leaning right content, sometimes in collaboration with the government. Democrats say the platforms have failed to adequately police misinformation and hateful speech in leading to dangerous outcomes, including violence. 
In the ruling, Judge Terry A. Doty of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Louisiana said that the parts of the government, including the Department of Health and Human Services, the FBI, could not talk to social media companies, quote, for the purposes of urging, encouraging, pressuring, or inducing any manner the removal, deletion, suppression, or reduction of content containing protected free speech. In granting a preliminary injunction, Judge Doty said that the agencies could not flag specific posts to the social media platforms or request port reports about their efforts to take down content. The ruling said the government could still notify the platforms about post detailing crimes, national security threats, or foreign attempts to influence elections. Quote, if the allegations made by plaintiffs are true, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history, the judge said. The plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits in establishing that the government has used its power to silence the opposition. Courts are increasingly being forced to weigh in on such issues with the potential to upend decades of legal norms that have governed speech online. And then it goes on to other cases in the same <clears throat> in the same strain and other uh, places in Texas and in Florida, and also apparently Missouri, where this same uh, this same argument is is being made. Um, uh, apparently, the case was brought by four plaintiffs, um, uh, these epidemiologists who questioned the government's handling of the pandemic, um, Aaron Cariotti, a professor dismissed by the University of California, Irvine, for refusing to have a coronavirus vaccination, Jill Hines, a director of Health Freedom in Louisiana, an organization that has been accused of disinformation, and Jim Hoft, founder of Gateway Pundit, a right-wing news site. The four additional plaintiffs said social media sites removed some of their posts. Uh, Judge Doty's ruling in the injunction would remain in place while proceedings in the lawsuit continued unless he or a higher court ruled differently. So, um, while we're on legal cases, um, we're, we're going to dive into the Supreme Court cases that came down. Um, but before we do that, I want to talk about two kind of ancillary stories. Um, one um, is about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it says here that report on Epstein's death finds errors and mismanagement at Manhattan Jail. It says here the Inspector General's report comes only four years after Jeffrey Epstein, 66, was found dead in his cell with a bedsheet tied around his neck. Um, he says here that he died by suicide, not foul play, after a cascade of negligence and mismanagement at the now-shuttered federal jail in Manhattan, where he was housed, according to the Justice Department's Inspector General. In a report released on Tuesday after a years-long investigation, the Inspector General said that leaders and staff members at the jail, the Federal Metropolitan Correctional Center, created an environment in which Mr. Epstein, a financier awaiting trial on sex trafficking and conspiracy charges, had every opportunity to kill himself. The Inspector General, Michael Horowitz, referred two employees, including one supervisor, for criminal prosecution by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York after they were caught falsifying records. But prosecutors declined to bring the charges. Even as the jail staff members, quote, engaged in significant misconduct and dereliction of their duties, investigators who combed through more than 100,000 records and conducted dozens of interviews, quote, did not uncover evidence, unquote, that contradicted the Federal Bureau of Investigation's finding that Mr. Epstein had died by his own hand with a makeshift noose. The report's conclusions seem unlikely to quell widespread conspiracy theories about Mr. Epstein, whose philanthropy and high-profile relationships with politicians and Wall Street titans masked a darker pattern of abuse. Uh, it says also that the combination of negligence, misconduct, and outright job performance failures documented in this report will all contribute to an environment in which arguably one of the Bureau of Prisons' most notorious inmates was provided with the opportunity to take his own life. 
Such failures, the report added, raised significant questions about Mr. Epstein's death and how it could have been allowed to happen, ultimately depriving, quote, his numerous victims, many of whom were underage girls at the time of the alleged crimes, of their ability to seek justice through the criminal justice process. So, four years on, the Epstein situation is the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. Um, speaking of ancillary legal cases that are interesting, um, Fox News has agreed to pay $12 million to settle hostile workplace lawsuit. Um, it says here they're going to pay it to Abby Grossberg, a former Fox News producer who had accused the network of operating a hostile and discriminatory workplace and of coercing her into providing false testimony in a deposition. Parisis Philippopatos, a lawyer for Ms. Grossberg, Greek name, very hard, said the settlement concluded all of Ms. Grossberg's claims against Fox and the people she'd named in her complaints, which included the former host Tucker Carlson and some of his producers. Ms. Grossberg's legal team filed a request in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York on Friday to dismiss a remaining lawsuit against Fox in light of the settlement. Ms. Grossberg said in a statement on Friday that she stood by her allegations, but she, quote, was heartened that Fox News has taken me and my legal claims seriously. I am hopeful, based upon our discussions with Fox News today, that this resolution represents a positive step by the network regarding its treatment of women and minorities in the workplace. Fox News had previously disputed Ms. Grossberg's claims. A spokeswoman for the network said in a statement on Friday, we are pleased that we have been able to resolve this matter without further litigation. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> in a weird kind of connection to everything, um... This is also connected to the Dominion voting systems thing. Um, and uh, it says here that the accusations against Fox by Ms. Grossberg 42 spring partly from the Dominion case. In March, she filed a lawsuit in Delaware claiming Fox coerced her into lying and sworn testimony she gave in the case. Ms. Grossberg amended her witness testimony before the Dominion trial, presenting another hurdle for Fox's legal team, which had already been dealt a series of blows in pretrial rulings. Ms. Grossberg also filed a separate lawsuit in New York that accused Fox and Mr. Carlson of allowing a culture of rampant misogyny. She said that she had been subjected to sexist and anti-Semitic harassment during her time as head of booking on Tucker Carlson tonight. Fox fired Ms. Grossberg four days after she filed the two lawsuits, saying in a statement at the time that she had disclosed privileged information about the Dominion case. She withdrew the Delaware suit in May, but her lawyer said at the time they had planned to refile in New York. So she's done very well for herself, and the bill for the whole election fraud Dominion thing is now up to almost, well, it's up to... $800 million, thereabouts. Um, lies are expensive. Let's just say that lying is expensive. Very, very expensive. $800 million expensive. Um, I mean, at what point does Fox, is Fox News going to stop the bleeding on this? Um, it's, uh, it's, you know... If I, if I were them and their lawyers, I would I would tighten things up. And this is this is running into real money. I mean, I know that Fox News is a billion dollar corporation, many multi billion dollar corporation, and but I mean even eight hundred million dollars is a lot. You know, it's a lot of checks to write. And what did you, what did you get for that privilege, so that your host could say things that weren't true? It's no easy thing. So, let's talk Supreme Court cases. Let's take a drink. Real quick. Let's talk Supreme Court cases. So, um, the Supreme Court's term ended on June 30th. <clears throat> and 
Um, and that means there was a lot of cases that came at the end of the term. Uh, three cases stood out. Um, one was about discrimination. One was about affirmative action. One was about student loan forgiveness. And the other one was about um, the uh, state legislature uh, theory, the independent state legislature theory. Um, I don't want to dive deep into the affirmative action situation because that case is, is complicated. It has to do with college admissions. And the, the summation of the case is that colleges can no longer use race as a determination in admissions. Um, it really guts affirmative action as an idea, the affirmative action being that if you have two candidates of similar qualifications and one comes from an underprivileged minority background, you should pick the minority over a comparable white candidate. Most people don't know that's what it is, but if you've ever been on a hiring committee, that's, um, that's what affirmative action is. Um, and so what colleges were doing is they were, you know, trying they were using affirmative action as a way to sort of rebalance their student population and this became particularly this came to a head at the ivies like harvard and yale because there were so many asian students applying and getting in that even at big popular state schools like university of california they were starting to readjust the entrance requirements and getting rid of test scores and all this type of thing to try to reduce that population. Some Asian students brought a lawsuit and that basically is the end of affirmative action in this country. Um, and it, it's a complicated thing. A lot of people have benefited from affirmative action, especially white women, um, but also black people as well, including Clarence Thomas, who wrote the... Um, opinion on the case was a beneficiary of affirmative action there's a lot of people who you know were given a chance to do something great and to ascend up the ladder because of affirmative action and that pathway in this particular context is going to be closed and i think the biggest problem is it's a whole repudiation against um you know, diversity, inclusion, equity. Um, there was kind of this scandal on social media where these major companies were getting rid of their DEI people afterwards. And it, it you know, there's this, the whole idea that, you know, a, a company, an institution should be reflective of society. Affirmative action was meant to try to kind of artificially create that. And that opportunity, at least in college admissions and many other contexts is no longer available to us as such um and there's continuing fallout from from that and and you also get a lot of um a lot of conversation about um and a lot of this is racist dog whistling when you get phrases thrown around like free association um free association was how they justified jim crow segregation um, was the, well, we just don't choose to associate with them and they don't choose to associate with us. So it's, you know, it's a free country. You could associate with them if you wanted to. And it's like, yeah, but that's not a real thing. How can you say it's free association when the black children are forced to go to school separate from white children and are forced to use separate bathrooms and right at the back of the bus and to see the different part of the lunch counter or not be able allowed into a restaurant at all? 
not allowed into a hotel at all, which was nationwide. Um, not allowed to appear on television with other people of color. I mean, how, at what point does free association become creating an underclass of secondary citizens? And so when people talk about like, oh, well, it's just bringing back free association. That's, there's a, there's a past to that phrase and how it was used to justify Jim Crow that is concerning to me. Um, and it's not that I don't think we haven't made progress on racial issues. We have. We've made lots of progress on racial issues. But there's also a lot of areas in which we have not made a lot of progress. And there's also a lot of situations where the institutions of this country could do so much more in raising up students of color um, and creating opportunities for them. Scott Galloway posted on LinkedIn this morning where he's like, well, not only do they need to bring in more minorities, they need to have more seats available for more kids, period, so that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. I don't totally agree with him. Um, but that, um, you know, that's its own, uh, that's its, kind of its own kind of separate problem off to the side. But that's that was one case that's caused a big kerfuffle. But the other, the other one I want to get into while we're on the topic of minorities and discrimination has to do with LGBTQ people. And it says here, the Supreme Court cited on Friday, that was June 30th, with a web designer in Colorado who said she had a First Amendment right to refuse to design wedding websites for same-sex couples despite a state law that forbids discrimination against gay people. Justice Neil Gorsuch, writing for the majority in a 6-3 vote, said that the First Amendment protected the designer, Lori Smith, from being compelled to express views she opposed. Quote, a hundred years ago, Miss Smith might have furnished her services using a pen and paper, he wrote. Those services are no less protected speech today because they are conveyed with a voice that resonates farther than it could from any soapbox. The case, though framed as a clash between free speech and gay rights, was the latest in a series of decisions in favor of religious people and groups, notably conservative Christians. The decision also appeared to suggest that the rights of LGBTQ people, including to same-sex marriage, are on more vulnerable legal footing. <clears throat> particularly when they're at odds with claims of religious freedom. At the same time, the ruling limited the ability of governments to enforce anti-discrimination laws. The justices split along ideological lines, and two sides appeared to talk past each other. The majority saw the decision as a victory that safeguarded the First Amendment right of artists to express themselves. The liberal justices viewed it as something else entirely, a dispute that threatened societal protections for gay rights and rolled back some recent progress. In an impassioned dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor warned that the outcome signaled a return to a time when people of color and other minority groups faced open discrimination. It was the second time this week that the justice summarized her dissent from the bit from the bench, a rare move that signals deep, dis deep disagreement. Appearing dismayed, Justice Sotomayor spoke for more than 20 minutes. This case cannot be understood outside the context in which it arises. In that context, the outcome is even more distressing, she wrote in her dissent. The LGBT rights movement has made historic strides, and I am proud of the role this court recently played in that history. Today, however, we are taking steps backwards. President Biden called the court's decision disappointing in a statement released. And, and the funny part, and I don't think they ever mention it in here, is that, um... Uh... <laughs> This web designer didn't actually have a gay client she was refusing. This was a theoretical case. She wanted to have the right to refuse a gay couple from making their website. That that's she didn't she was not being begged by anybody to do something. She was not turning anybody away. Um 
It says uh, that when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, it agreed to decide only one question, whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. A divided three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit in Denver that applied the most demanding form of judicial scrutiny to the Colorado law, but upheld it. And it says that Colorado has a compelling interest in protecting both the dignity and interests of members of its marginalized groups and their material interest in accessing in the commercial marketplace. Judge Mary Beck Briscoe wrote for the majority, adding that the law is narrowly tailored to address the interest. It also says here, uh, quoting Justice Sotomayor, um, if you have ever taken advantage of a public business without being denied service because of who you are, then you have come to enjoy the dignity and freedom that this principle protects, she wrote. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, no less than anyone else, deserve that dignity and freedom. It should also be noted, before I move on, um, gender, uh, and sex and sexuality are not a protected class at the federal level yet. Um, so you can still have discrimination for that. One of these days I'll tell the story of what happened to me about that. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, um, and that, um, that's, uh, this is definitely not going to get us any closer to that situation or that solution any, <laughs> anytime soon uh the other big case that came out um was um about uh the student loan forgiveness program so as you know um president biden used a 1964 act to uh authorize ten thousand dollars per person or twenty thousand dollars per household um i'm sorry Ten to twenty thousand dollars of student loan forgiveness for those who make under a quarter million dollars per household, um, and that was supposed to roll out this year. It was challenged at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said no. Here it says. The Supreme Court ruled on Friday that the Biden administration had overstepped its authority with its plan to wipe out more than $400 billion in student loan debt, dashing the hopes of tens of millions of borrowers and imposing new restrictions on presidential power. It was a resounding setback for President Biden, who had vowed to help borrowers crawl out from under that mountain of debt. More than 45 million people across the country owe $1.6 trillion in federal loans for college, according to government data. And the proposed debt cancellation announced by Mr. Biden last summer would have been one of the most expensive executive actions in U.S. history. Even as he denounced the Supreme Court striking down his student debt forgiveness program and blamed Republicans for going after it, President Biden said Friday that his administration would start a new effort to cancel college loans under a different law. The law Mr. Biden cited, the Higher Education Act of 1965, contains a provision, Section 1082 of Title 20 of the United States Code that gives the Secretary of Education the authority to, quote, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired, including any equity or any right of redemption. So, um, the, uh, that, there, I guess they're going to make another run at it probably in time for the 2024 election. It says here the administration took a step this fall that could make it easier for the most vulnerable student borrowers to clear their debts through bankruptcy. Unlike credit card bills, medical bills, and other consumer debts, student loans aren't automatically wiped away by in bankruptcy. Borrowers are required to file a separate lawsuit to try to do so. It's stressful, costly, and notoriously difficult to meet the strict legal test to succeed, and most debtors don't even try. 
In November, the Justice Department, in coordination with the Education Department, announced a new process that it said would help ensure that people in bankruptcy seeking relief on their federal student loans were treated more fairly with clearer guidelines about what types of cases would result in a discharge. Administrations have often taken a hard line on the ability of borrowers to use bankruptcy to discharge their student loans, aggressively contesting their cases in court. It was partly to deter borrowers from even trying to bring a bankruptcy case without first exploring other ways to reduce debt. As a result, the process became too burdensome for those who were the most stressed. Under the new guidelines, debtors will complete, quote, an attestation form, which the government will use to help determine whether to recommend a discharge. If debtors meet certain requirements, including having expenses exceed their income, government lawyers will recommend a full or partial discharge. So that's helpful, but that was definitely one of his campaign promises that did not, um, did not happen and isn't going to happen. So if you were hoping for ten dollars to $20,000 student loan forgiveness, that's off the table, at least for now. Um, the final Supreme Court case that I want to cover um, has to do with the independent state legislature theory. Um, and it says here, the Supreme Court on Tuesday, this was back in June, on June 26th, rejected a legal theory that would have radically reshaped how federal elections are conducted by giving state legislatures largely unchecked power to set rules for federal elections and to draw congressional maps warped by partisan gerrymandering. The vote was 6-3, to three, with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion. The Constitution, he said, does not exempt state legislatures from the ordinary constraints imposed by state law. Oh. The decision followed other important rulings this term, in which the court's three liberal members were in the majority, including the ones on the Voting Rights Act, Immigration, and Tribal Rights. Though some of their biggest cases are still to come, and we just talked about them, probably by the end of the week, the court has so far repeatedly repudiated aggressive, aggressive arguments from conservative litigants. The case concerned the independent state legislature theory. It is based on a reading of the Constitution's Elections Clause, which says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Proponents of the strongest form of the theory say that this means that no other organs of state government, not courts, not governors, not election administrators, not independent commissions, can alter a legislature's actions on federal elections. Chief Justice Roberts rejected that position. The Elections Clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. The ruling soundly dismissed the theory, one that an unusually diverse array of lawyers, judges, and scholars across the ideological spectrum viewed as extreme and dangerous. Adopting the theory, they warned, could have profound consequences for nearly every aspect of federal elections, including erasing safeguards against partisan gerrymandering and curtailing the ability to challenge voting restrictions in state courts. But some election law specialists cautioned that Tuesday's decision elevated the power of federal courts in the process, allowing them to second-guess at least some rulings of state courts based on state law. This gives the U.S. Supreme Court the ultimate say over the meaning of state law in the midst of an election dispute. Richard L. Hansen, a law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, wrote in a blog post, This is a bad but not awful result. Authors said that the decision was a nearly complete victory and a resounding reaffirmation of the status quo. I see no evidence of interest by the Supreme Court to make mischief here, said Vikram David Amar, Dean of the University of Illinois College of Law. As Chief Justice Roberts put it, state courts do not have free reign and are subject to oversight by federal courts in cases involving federal elections, but he said quite little about the nature and extent of that oversight. The case, Moore v. Harper, concerned a voting map drawn by North Carolina legislature after the 2020 census that was initially rejected as a partisan gerrymander by the state's Supreme Court. Experts said that the map was likely to yield a congressional delegation made up of at least 10 Republicans and four or fewer Democrats, even though North Carolina is a roughly evenly divided state politically. 
the state court initially rejected the argument that it was not entitled to review the actions of the, of the, the state's legislature, saying that adopting the independent state legislature theory would be repugnant to the sovereignty of states and the authority of state constitutions and the independence of state courts and would produce absurd and dangerous consequences. Republicans, seeking to restore the legislative map last year, asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene, arguing an emergency application that the state court had been powerless to act. The justices rejected the request for immediate intervention, and the election in November was conducted under a map drawn by experts appointed by the state court. That resulted in a 14-member congressional delegation that was evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. The Republican lawmakers appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, saying the state court was not entitled to second-guess the legislature. When the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in the case in December, the justices seemed divided, if not fractured, over the limits of the theory. Many observers had expected the U.S. Supreme Court to dismiss the case in light of that development, but Chief Justice Roberts concluded the case involved a live controversy, and the court retained jurisdiction over it. So the long story short is that... Um, legislatures are still subject to laws and they can't just do whatever they want to without any sort of judicial review. Moore versus Harper was a case that if it had gone the other way would have also allowed state legislatures to change the electoral college votes for president, which is how that case got started after the 2020 election and um and it was one of the cases that we were definitely watching out for and we're hoping would go the right way um because it would uh it would be a bad thing for for democracy when if a state doesn't you know vote the right way the state legislature can just come in and say no we're rejecting that and sending a new people no so the supreme court did good on this one democracy is safe for another supreme court term so the supreme court will reconvene in october taken the summer and early fall off and um yeah so and it was the first term with uh, justice katanji brown jackson on the court so and she did yeoman's work and wrote a lot of stuff and took the job very very seriously so um it was a a good term so um that's what we have today for the cameron journal news hour i appreciate you all um thank you for coming thank you for watching um i appreciate it make sure to catch us online uh, CameronJournal.com and on all your favorite social media places, um, including the new threads. And I will talk to you all next week. Be well. Bye bye now. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Carolyn on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>